Okay, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. We're jumping right in. We're going to pick up from where we left off last time, Matthew chapter 10. That would be Matthew 10 verses 16 through 22, which we found was filled with several hard sayings of Jesus. Not hard to understand, but hard to swallow. In this passage, Jesus is setting the expectation for how his disciples will be treated in the world, especially as they function as lights. And that expectation includes a lot of suffering, persecution, and even at the extreme death, all for Christ's namesake. Nevertheless, he calls his disciples to be wise, holy, and to endure. It is some heavy stuff, but we're back this morning to carry on and see how Jesus builds on what we are to expect and how we are to respond. One thing that stands out as Jesus continues is the dimension of time. The concept of time plays a huge role in how we handle expectations and and how we endure difficulty. We often want to know just how long will some difficulty last. It helps mitigate the suffering. Say you've made some travel plans, you have a big East Coast trip planned, and everything's on a strict itinerary Looking forward to it. You get to the airport four hours early, you're not going to miss that flight. But not everything is under your control. It's hard to plan for a freak thunderstorm that keeps you grounded on the tarmac for six hours. Or worse yet, engine trouble, you're forced to deplane and, and wait. How well would you handle such adversity? It's not the end of the world, but I can tell you what, what every dad would do soon after hearing the flight is delayed Even though they just announced they don't know how long the delay will be, he's still going to work his way up to that counter and ask, like, how long do you think the delay is going to be? We just, we want to know what to expect. Just, just, just tell me how long. If we knew how long, then at least we can make the best of it. It's going to be three hours. The cat can walk to find better food. If it's overnight, at least we can see the local sites. But when you have no expectation, it could be one hour, it could be 24, that is frustrating. We don't do well when we don't know how long our suffering will last. It's hard enough just to suffer and keep it together, rightly responding. But I've seen the worst come out of people, myself included, when they're going through adversity and they just have no idea how long it will last. It's the not knowing that messes people up. This is similarly true for us as Christians when we suffer. Because we know we're not in control, but we still just want to know, like, how long will this last? How long will this trial or affliction last? The thing is, we're not entitled to an answer. Answers are rarely found. When going through a trial, no no timetable is given to us. It could be a day, a week, a month, a year, the rest of your life. And you wonder, how long, O Lord? When, When will these things change? No answer is given, which makes our suffering that much harder. But as we are made to suffer, especially when we are being persecuted, for Christ's name's sake. Just like we learned last time, we are to endure to the end. How long that will be it can vary. It's unclear, but we must maintain the faith and maintain a godly response, firm all the way to the end, end of our suffering, end of our lives. In Matthew 10, verses 16 through 22, Jesus addresses both of these issues in a bigger picture. Really what we can expect in following him in a dark world and then how we are to conduct ourselves in response. So to get back up to speed, let's read that passage again. Follow along, Matthew 10, 16 through 22. Jesus says this. 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And that was our text last week as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, but Now, we did leave out the last verse in this section, verse 23, which brings the the time dimension into this discussion of what to expect. It likewise speaks to both issues, what to expect and how we are to respond, but it does so in an enigmatic way, you might say. Verse 23, he says right after, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now here you can see how Jesus adds one more element to our response of opposition, namely flight. We're told to flee persecution. Don't confuse endurance back in verse 22 with being like a passive, helpless victim. Okay, so that's an important point. You can also see how Jesus addresses the time dimension in our expectation of opposition. Now, how long can we expect this picture of opposition he painted to last? The answer is, until the Son of Man comes. But what does he mean by that? When is that? And what is all this business about not finishing going through the cities of Israel? Left wondering, like, what and when is he talking about? Now, there's a reason we left this verse out from last week. In Matthew 10, verse 23, it's actually known as one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Matthew's gospel. And we left it out, not so as to skip over it, but that we might come back and give it full treatment, that we might save it to try and figure out, like, what does this mean? You may have had no idea that Matthew 23 is such a notoriously difficult verse in Matthew. You may not care it. I think a lot of people read, read a verse like this, pause for a second, and think, I wonder what that means. No, and just, just move on. It's like seeing something shiny buried in the sand, like it could be treasure. You start digging a little bit, but then you quickly realize, like, this object is massive. It's going to take me forever to dig this thing out, and I don't have time, I don't have tools, just, just forget it. I, I understand that. I would still encourage you to dig. At the very least, that's what we're going to do together this morning. This may not be your cup of tea, but I I still hope this instructs you and and instills in you the importance of God's word. Every verse, every word is inspired. The scriptures come from God. God breathed to us, the church, for all life and godliness. Every verse is worth contending over. This is God's truth for us. We are to be seekers of that truth. And look, it's in our name. We're Berean Bible Church. It's, it's kind of like what we do. But our goal here is always to rightly divide the word of God. 
And so we've returned to do that this morning with just, just a single verse, verse 23, which is, is widely regarded as one of Christ's most difficult sayings, which probably explains why the commentators are all over the map on this one. And unlike the previous verses, this is not hard to accept. It's just hard to interpret. Like, what does he mean? You have to get this right. If you're going to apply it to today, you can never answer the question, what does this verse mean for me? Until you answer, like, what does it mean? Like, the application has to be grounded in the meaning. So needless to say, this won't be like a traditional three-point sermon this morning. It's really not much of a, a sermon at all, but more of a, an exploratory Bible study that we're just going to do together to try and get to the bottom of a hard saying that we might figure out how it, it bears on the church today. And maybe even as we go, you'll learn, like, how do you go about studying the scriptures to uncover their meaning? How do you unlock the meaning of a passage that's so widely interpreted? Well, I'm going to show you that in action. I'm going to start by just spending some time getting reacquainted with the context, because that matters most. You go back to verse 5 of this chapter. Jesus has just named the 12, and it says in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. And as we've already seen, Matthew 10 is all about Jesus sending his 12 disciples out to preach the very first time they're engaging in the work of the ministry. And in verses 5 through 15, he gives them instructions about how to handle this first short-term local mission trip where they're sent only to the cities of Israel. Now, we've made the point last time that things change in verse 16. The scope of their mission increases as do Christ's instruction. It's clear that he's now prophetically addressing their their long-term global mission after the cross. The, The picture of persecution he paints in the verses we already read, 16 through 22, there's no indication any of the disciples were treated like that on that first short-term little trip when they returned to the Lord. But then you go and read the book of Acts, and these verses are precisely how the disciples were treated. We don't have time to rebuild that case from last week, but starting in verse 16, Jesus speaking prophetically, looking forward to the time when his gospels would witness the full gospel after the death, his death and resurrection, and then they would receive the full opposition for the gospel. And look, that expected opposition got pretty serious. Look, verse 21, we're talking betrayal by family members unto death. And in verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. Then he says, but is the one who endures to the end who will be saved? And already the mention of the end is intriguing. Like, what does he mean by that? What end does he have in mind? But again, it's more intriguing when we add in verse 23. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. The monkey wrench in this verse is just that the coming of the Son of Man. Like what, it, what is that all about? Does Jesus have in mind that the time of the early church? If so, how do you explain that the coming of the Son of Man? Does Jesus have in mind his, his second coming? If so, how do you explain not finishing going through the cities of Israel? No, no option here is without difficulty, which is why there are many interpretations. So let's see what we can do. Let's take this in order. And b- before we tackle this whole son of man business, 
I want to see if we can figure out the first half of verse 23, where Jesus says, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. All right, so here Jesus adds one more critical way we are to respond to all this persecution he's been describing. So far in these verses, how has he described how we should handle opposition for our faith? Look, we've been told to be shrewd, but also innocent. We've been told to be on guard, but not anxious. And the Lord will give us words to speak. Above all, we've been told to endure. But then here in verse 23, he puts one more response forward, which is to flee. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. This is an important response to consider. It really balances the call to endurance in the previous verse. We're called to endure, but we're never given this impression that endurance means just sitting helplessly, doing nothing about all the wicked treatment from the world. Now, Jesus gives us one option on the table and tells us to take it, and that is to flee. It's worth pointing out, we don't have the option of picking up the sword and going on the offense and and hurting others. We don't attack, but we are told to flee, to spare your life. This is not endorsing cowardice. There will be times when ungodly men lay their hands on believers and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't flee. Just think of what happened to Stephen in Acts 7, that the first martyr, he could not flee. But as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit gave him words to speak and he delivered a powerful witness of Christ, even as he was being stoned to death. That said, though, like if the window presents itself, by all means, flee. You can see the motive here is not cowardice, but ongoing testimony. You look at verse 23, like, why is he telling the disciples to flee? Why do they need to flee? Well, it's because they've been persecuted in a city. Why were they in that city? Well, because here in context, they were preaching Christ. They were witnessing the gospel. If Jesus were merely telling them to flee to save their skin, he would say, if they persecute in one city, just run to the hills, find somewhere safe to go. But his response is basically out of the frying pan into the fire. If they persecute you in one city, just go to the next city. Okay, I know you were just nearly killed for witnessing Christ in that city, but if that happens, just do the same thing in another city. And if they come after you there, just just keep going. You can see that what's behind this response of flight is just, it's being shrewd. It's, it's so as to not needlessly suffer at the hands of the wicked while, while keeping your witness alive as light. Again, the Apostle Paul exemplified this. You just read Acts 13 and 14, his, his first missionary journey. This happened like every city. He shows up, preaches, he's persecuted, almost killed, realizes it's probably time to leave town. And he takes the gospel to the next town over and over again. He knew well that the strategy espoused by the Lord here When they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. The verses 16 through 23 relate the extreme case of opposition Christians will face. But they still provide guidance in principle for all the lesser forms of persecution we will face. And so just by way of application then, I think we can quickly think about this flight response. That there, there is a time and place to flee. That is wise and noble. We've learned as Christians, we, we don't glorify persecution. That, 
that would just be a type of spiritual pride. We, we don't run headlong into persecution. And we're not trying to give the wicked an excuse to, to harm us. This is part of what Jesus said as being shrewd as serpents, wise, sensible. When expedient, when it, it is good to escape harm. If we value human life, we value our lives. So like when possible, preserve both. And so you should understand that you're, you're not obligated to stay in oppos- opposition against your faith to the degree that you're imprisoned, harmed, or killed. Be strong and courageous, but also sensible and wise. We ultimately submit to God's sovereignty in the matter, knowing there'll be many cases we have no option to flee. But you should seek to extend your testimony as light in the dark as long as possible. With this subject in mind, I think it's good to take just a minute here and think about applying the principle of this first half of verse 23 in our context, which would be living in California in the 2020s. Like we know, ever since COVID, we've seen a massive exodus of Christians and conservatives out of California. People flee California for a variety of reasons, the insane cost of living, the the political climate, and I never condemn anyone for choosing to move away. You're free to do as you see fit, applying all wisdom. And I know we all, by default, want safety and comfort. No one wants to live in a state of opposition. But the point I'd like to make here that as, as bad as California has become, we're not yet at the point of applying verse 23, meaning don't make this your reason for leaving. It's not really time to flee for the sake of persecution here in our context. The threat of imprisonment, death, it's, it's not here, at least, at least not yet. You might experience softer forms of persecution where because of your faith, your family members don't talk to you anymore. They don't invite you to family gatherings. Or you miss out on a promotion because your boss knows you're not LGBT affirming. But I would urge you not to be too quick to just flee and give ground to the darkness. We're not in a situation where we, we must like run for our lives. To the contrary, we have this unique system of government that gives each citizen a voice through a vote. And we have certain rights programmed into our constitution, the highest law of our land. So we should not be too quick to give up the liberty that has been granted to us and like not squander it. So it's not time to cower, hide, or flee to safety. I counsel people to stay and to use their vote and their voice as just a bold witness. You might suffer a little bit, yes, but let the light shine. We as the church cannot function as salt or light if we keep just running away from all the places of dark decay. The day might come for us to truly need to flee to the next city, the next state, who knows, but I don't think that day is today. So I urge people always just to contend for truth and righteousness and Christ, even in California. Now, we need to get to the second half of verse 23. It's going to take some time. Verse 23 says, whenever they persecute you in in one city, flee to the next. For, truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So it appears Jesus is adding the the time dimension to their expectations. They're going to be persecuted. but, But how long can they expect it to be like this? And his answer is like, until the Son of Man comes. You see why this is tricky to understand? 
Is, is Jesus talking about the, the second coming? If so, are we supposed to believe that, that these cities of Israel have still not been evangelized in the past 2,000 years? Or is, is he referring that he will, or inferring that he will come again sometime in the lifetime of the twelve? Well, there's, there's one mundane solution that really is compelling to no one, but worth mentioning. It's just that Jesus, he just met the disciples. You guys better get a move on because he's going to be right behind them. The Son of Man is coming, meaning he will catch up to them on this first mission trip before too long. So they better hurry up. They're not going to finish. They better hurry up because he'll, he'll be right behind them. This, this pretty poor solution doesn't really fit the gravity of these words, of this context. It's a pretty meaningless thing to say. And we already established Jesus. He's no longer talking about this first mission trip of the 12. He's addressing a time after the cross when they will be persecuted. Now instead, a lot of people look for a solution by taking the, the coming of the Son of Man in a figurative sense. He's coming figuratively. Some suggest it's a reference to the resurrection or Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. Both of those events are big deals, but the problem is they're they're never referred to once as a coming of the Son of Man. That's a loaded term. Also, remember, like between the cross and Pentecost, what are the disciples doing? They're not going from city to city evangelizing while being persecuted. They went back to fishing in Galilee, or they're waiting in Jerusalem. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't account for the sense of urgency in the Lord's words to, of this witness to the cities of Israel. Any, any solution has to address the urgency to keep going through these cities. You're not going to finish until the Son of Man returns. Now next, still in the figurative camp, some believe the coming of the Son of Man refers to the invisible coming of Jesus in judgment against Israel and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. John Calvin called this view far-fetched, but it has some merits. It understands that verses 16 through 23 refers not to the first mission of the 12, but, but their mission after the resurrection. That's certainly true. These verses, they do describe the, the apostolic stage of the early church. Like we've seen, like look at Paul. He was persecuted in all these ways. He's the one fleeing from city to city. And so it really, it's really a stretch to think that the Son of Man did come in the lifetime of the apostles in a figurative way. But I think this view has some flaws. When, when you think about it, there are, there are 40 years between the resurrection and AD 70. It's actually plenty of time for the disciples to finish going through the cities of Israel. I mean, even if you were to say there are 500 cities or villages of Israel at the time, it would take, if you just stick with 12 disciples, it's like one city per month over 40 years, and they'd hit them all. It doesn't, it doesn't address the urgency of his words. Also, a big flaw is this is simply not how the New Testament speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. That's a loaded term, especially in Matthew, and it refers to the second coming of the Christ. We're going to see that in just a little bit. But listen, even if you were to postulate that, look, in AD 70, there was, there was figurative coming of the Christ in judgment on Israel. Even so, it's just that. It's just judgment. If Jesus came figuratively in AD 70 to judge Israel, that, that coming did nothing to comfort believers or to deliver disciples from their persecution. But isn't that why Jesus is saying this in verse 23? Like, why is he telling them this? 
He just gave them this picture, this intense picture of persecution. They're going to be hated and betrayed, arrested, some even killed. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is an end in sight to this opposition. It seems clear that that end is correlated to the next verse, the coming of the Son of Man, which itself is given as a comfort. This is your comfort, the coming of the Son of Man. His coming means deliverance for God's people. So while this coming of the Son of Man might mean judgment upon Israel, it must also mean comfort and deliverance for the disciples. But did that happen in AD 70? It did not. In fact, persecution against Christians didn't change at all. It got much worse after AD 70. You know, the first 300 years, the church suffered 10 major persecutions by the Roman Empire. The first was under Emperor Nero in the 8060s, but a second great persecution came just 20 years later under Domitian. That's when Timothy, we're reading 1 Timothy, that's when he was martyred for his faith in Ephesus. That second great persecution ended in AD 96, and Christians knew peace for all of one year before the third great persecution started. That lasted from AD 98 to 117 and saw some 10,000 Christians martyred. It just went like this on and on for the first 300 years. The 10th great persecution was the worst. This was under Emperor Diocletian from AD 284 to 305. And he, he saw Christianity rising. He wanted to revive the pagan religion of Rome. And he did not want to persecute Christians. He wanted to annihilate them. He planned a holocaust. And over 10 years, he tried to make it happen. Thousands of Christians were killed. Countless churches and Bibles. Think of all the manuscripts we lost. They were all burned. But the church survived. The point is this. You know, we're, we're given the impression that this picture of opposition in verses 16 through 23, that it will end after the coming of the Son of Man. But this argues against AD 70 because that didn't happen. In fact, this, this passage, this is still how believers are treated all around the world for their faith, especially on the front lines of ministry. This is still going on. And so I think, look, all the various figurative interpretations, they, they have their challenges. Now we're left to wonder, like, is it even possible to... Take a literal interpretation with this passage. Is Jesus talking about like his physical second coming? Well, let's keep going. Then the next thing to do is just call it a lexical study. You have this phrase, the coming of the Son of Man. It's used often in Matthew. Like, don't you think we should see how this phrase is used, especially in Matthew? Seems like it'd be a pretty big deal. I'm going to do this quick. We're just in Matthew. You can follow if you like, but it starts in Matthew 13. 37 through 43, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus is teaching how the the true and the false, the wheat and the tares will grow up together until the end of the age, at which point, verse 41, that the Son of Man will send forth his angels to do two things, gather the wicked for a judgment of fire, but also gather the elect, they'll inherit, verse 43, the kingdom of their father. This just begins this recurring connection between the Son of Man coming with his angels, and this, this future time of, of two things, that the wicked being judged, the elect being delivered. We see that over and over again. And Christ himself explicitly says this will take place at the end of the age. 
Now, next up, Matthew 16, 27. This is Jesus teaching on discipleship after being confessed as the Christ for the first time by Peter. He finally reveals what's going to happen. Verse 27, at the end, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This mention of coming in connection with judgment leads I think almost everybody to believe this is a second coming passage. Jesus says right after, verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think everyone likewise agrees that this is referring to the transfiguration, which happens the very next verse in all three synoptic gospels. Jesus just said that the Son of Man will come in glory, well, a few disciples get like a literal preview of the visible glory the Son of Man will have when he returns. The same picture of the Son of Man coming in glory is found in the next reference, Matthew 24. This is now the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching on a, a time of great tribulation that falls on the earth. And after that tribulation, it says down in verse 30, after this time of tribulation, verse 29, verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. You see the pattern, right? It's quite consistent with these earlier comings of the Son of Man. He's coming in glory with his angels. Now, I know there are some, like R.C. Sproul, a beloved Bible teacher. We all love R.C. Sproul. He's one who believes this passage right here is itself a reference to Christ coming figuratively in judgment in AD 70. But since he rejects the heresy of full preterism, he still believes in a second uh, future coming of the Christ. And so Sproul, for example, down in verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man in verse 37, he believes that has switched, and that is now talking about the second coming. Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. that will come suddenly. Now, I would argue that's quite inconsistent, but that's for another time. That the phrase that the coming of the Son of Man is used several times throughout this chapter, chapter 24, and I don't see any textual reason for taking them as different comings. I think you have to read that in. But I believe they all clearly relate to the same second coming. Verse 27, the coming of the Son of Man will be visible. It's like lightning that flashes from east to west. It's for all the seats. It's unmistakable. You're not going to miss it. Verse 44, the coming of the Son of Man will be unexpected. It will happen at an hour that you do not think. These are all the same verses, same phraseology, uh, I would contend they're all referring to the same event, the second coming. Now, the next reference, chapter 25, that would be the sheep and goats judgment still in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. Then it goes on to talk about the nations being judged unto 
their eternal destinies. And because, again, this, this concept of, of final judgment, we, we can clearly take this to be a second coming passage. You have the same features, Christ coming in glory with his angels. He'll sit on his throne and judge the nations as he establishes his kingdom on earth. The same two functions happen. The wicked are judged, the elect are delivered and enter glory. And that picture continues with one last reference, Matthew 26, verse 64. This is where Jesus is on trial before the Jews, and he finally confesses who he really is. 26:64. He responds to the high priest. He said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's what leads them to convict him of blasphemy and kill him, by the way. But here Jesus, he's quoting Daniel 7. And that's the original Son of Man prophecy. And all these phrases, it's all about not just Jesus coming, it's the Son of Man coming. We did a whole sermon a couple months ago on that title, the Son of Man, loaded with prophetic significance. Back in Daniel 7, he sees a vision of this figure who looks like a son of man, meaning a human, but he clearly has divine glory. And Daniel sees that he is the one to, to finally bring in God's everlasting kingdom. And when he comes, it puts an end to the kingdoms of man. Specifically at the time, there is this kingdom of this figure called a little horn, this ruler. And he had subdued all the nations and led them in a, in a unified rebellion against God. But in the minds of the prophets, the, the coming of the Son of Man means that the coming of that eternal kingdom. So look, we do some Bible study. Lexically, I think the coming of the Son of Man is used pretty consistently in Matthew's gospel to refer to the second coming of Jesus. It's in power. It's in glory. It's with the angels. It does two things. It renders judgment on the wicked, but it, it provides deliverance for the elect. So with this in mind, you go back to Matthew 10, verse 23, and I don't see strong reason to take this figuratively. Overall, I, th I think Matthew himself understood Jesus, that Jesus himself anticipated a, a literal future second coming. That's how this phrase is consistently used. But that coming of the Son of Man would indeed bring great comfort to these disciples who are being persecuted from city to city. Because his coming means for them, for the faithful, it means deliverance, it means glory. Now, we do need to be honest because no view of Matthew 10.23 is without difficulty. That's why it's hard. And look, that includes the second coming interpretation. So if you take this verse as the second coming, you do have some problems. Let's talk about those. Primarily, if you take this as the second coming, you have to somehow explain the middle of verse 23 where it says that the disciples will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And so look, just think, if, if 40 years was plenty of time for the disciples to reach all the cities of Israel, I'm pretty sure 2,000 years would be plenty of time as well. Now, are we supposed to believe that these cities of Israel have still not been evangelized because Christ has not returned? So how do we understand this reference? Some try and weasel out of this by claiming Israel just means the world. 
that that's nonsense. That the term Israel is used everywhere in the New Testament, every single time, to refer to ethnic Israel. And look, we've seen this in Matthew's Gospel, especially with this concern for Jewish priority, that there's no confusion in his mind between Israel and the nations. These are talking about the literal cities of Israel for sure. And so, what do we make of this? Well, I believe here the interpretive key comes from a a cross-reference. You know, why not let Scripture help interpret Scripture? And what if I told you that, Matthew 10, 16 through 23, what if I told you that almost the exact same words are found somewhere else in the Bible, in a different setting, but almost the exact same words, and they're they're applied elsewhere? Wouldn't you want to know that? Sounds like, again, a pretty big deal. We should probably take that into account. And so turn to Mark 13. Mark 13. Mark 13 is Mark's record of the Olivet Discourse. In this message, Jesus is describing, verse 6, a time of tribulation that includes false Christs. Verse 7, it includes wars. Verse 8, it includes natural disasters. Okay. He says that's just the beginning. Now look at Mark 13, 9 through 13. And just you tell me if this sounds familiar. Tell me if you've heard these words before. Mark 13, 9 through 13. He says, after that, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. The gospel must firsthand be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But I say, whatever is given you in that hour, uh, for, or, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now you can see for yourself, these are almost, in some places, identical words and wording to Matthew 10. So first, how do we explain this? Like, are Matthew and Mark just, like, copying each other? No, it's, it's very simple and provable to show Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He, he taught the same words or similar teaching on many different occasions. It's just, he just taught this twice. It's as simple as that. All right, so how, then, do we take these words? What, what's the setting of the Olivet Discourse? What's the timing of these words? Well, look at the next verse, verse 14. He references this abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, he goes on. That is a reference to a Daniel 9 prophecy of 70 weeks. And that last week, it's a seven-year period, happens some unidentified time after the death of the Messiah. It's described as a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. And Daniel envisions that in the middle of those seven years, this, this prince figure, or he's called the beast, or little horn, or elsewhere, it's called Antichrist. He breaks his covenant with Israel, he defiles the temple, and sets up what's called the abomination of desolation. And Jesus is clearly referring to that event in this prophecy, quoting and leaning so much on Daniel 9. So the context of this Olivet Discourse is Daniel's 70th week, this time of tribulation. I mean, look at verse 19. He says it. He says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred 
since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Okay, so it sounds pretty bad. Now, this tribulation culminates, verse 24, in those days after that tribulation. Verse 26, same thing. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. It's the same thing. And so look, in the Olivet Discourse, the setting of these words, we contend, is a future time of tribulation that culminates in the physical second coming. If that's the case, wouldn't it stand to reason that the exact same words Jesus taught back in Matthew 10, that they also have as their ultimate reference this future time of tribulation culminating in the physical second coming? Yes, I do believe that is the case. That the ultimate timing, the ultimate reference to Matthew 10, 16 through 23, is that future time of tribulation. So listen, from the Olivet Discourse to the book of Revelation, you're not going to make much sense of biblical prophecy if you don't take into account at least two devices the prophets used often in their prophecies. The first we call prophetic foreshortening. This is where, from one perspective, two events appear to be near to one another in time, but from another perspective, there's a big gap in between, in between them. So looking down the rifle, the, the near sights and the far sights appear right next to each other. If you turn the rifle sideways, it's actually several feet in between them. And likewise, many prophetic events at first appear to be back-to-back, but from a later perspective, it's clear, like, oh, there's a big gap in between them. For example, the first and second comings of the Christ. Now, the second device is the reality of near and far fulfillment in the same prophecy. You find this all over the place in the Old Testament. There, there were some words of a prophet, and some of those words were meant to apply to his day and age. There would be an initial near fulfillment to his prophecy, and that would function as a sign such that when people saw all those words come true in his day, it would give credibility to everything else he said. You would better believe everything else because there is a distant, far, full fulfillment to his words. At the very least, this is how I take the Olivet Discourse, which means I actually believe much of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse does find near initial fulfillment in AD 70. It's really not surprising since Jesus just predicted the temple would be destroyed. That is the near sign. But at the same time, Christ's words in this chapter appear to to clearly expect something more, a distant, future, far, full fulfillment. They anticipate a a truly global, cataclysmic, unmistakable time of tribulation on earth that ends with the physical second coming of the Christ in glory. Now, I can't take these issues too much further right here. This strikes your interest. You want to learn more, and you don't want to wait till we get to Matthew 24, I preached through Mark, and on our website, you can find the nine sermons through the Olivet Discourse we did in Mark 13. Now, at this point, back to Matthew 10, like, what have we established? You look back at Matthew 10, 16 through 23, and look, since Christ's teaching, and this section is identical to the Olivet Discourse, which has a clear setting of the future tribulation, well, I just believe that's the same setting for these words, Matthew 10, 16 through 23 that Jesus is speaking prophetically. His words have an initial near fulfillment in the lives of the disciples. Yes, absolutely. That they will be persecuted. 
But they also have a far final fulfillment in the tribulation. This is all about an expectation of opposition, right? That he's telling them there's going to be much initial opposition for the church. But look, the ultimate greatest opposition believers will ever receive will be in the tribulation. That the coming of the Son of Man will be their deliverance. Now, when you get to this point, it actually makes perfect sense of the notion that the disciples won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This view take, captures the, the urgency of those words, you know, looking forward to the far fulfillment of these words. You know, the, this tribulation time, it's, it's not just one of wrath on the earth. It is also a time of like, great global evangelism. The gospel will have a huge impact on all the nations in that time, resulting in massive Gentile salvation. You see that, for example, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. But that same chapter, Revelation 7 and elsewhere, also teach that the tribulation will be a time of renewed Jewish evangelism. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I did a sermon on Jewish priority in the book of Romans. Perfect correlation. The New Testament explains how national Israel has been hardened in unbelief, rejecting the Messiah, that this is the time of the Gentiles. But, like Paul says in Romans 11, 25, 26, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved. And he then correlates that to the next verse, the coming of the Christ. It's just the same prophetic expectation all over the place. Regarding the tribulation time, yes, it is a time of judgment, God's wrath being poured out upon the wicked on the earth. But God has other objectives during this time, and one of the main objectives of this tribulation is the eventual restoration of national Israel. Why do you think in the Old Testament, this, the same period is called the time of Jacob's trouble? Also, go back and read Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. That, that's the original 70 weeks prophecy. And just in that text, what is the intended purpose for these 70 weeks, including that last one, the tribulation? The purpose stated is the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem. Again, it's the same picture throughout. You know, speaking of Revelation 7, we, we learn that in the tribulation, God seals this special group of witnesses they're known as the 144,000, these witnesses. Who are they? Revelation 7.4 says, John says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it goes on to list, like literally 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, all 12. 12 times 12, there you go, 144,000. This is undoubtedly talking about ethnic Jews. These are Jews who get saved in the tribulation, they follow Christ, and then God makes them his witnesses to national Israel. The tribulation is a time of massive destruction, yes, but also mass salvation, Jew and Gentile. And it's followed by mass martyrdom. You just read Revelation 6, and you see that the, the voice of the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? He says, Wait a little while longer. Son of man is coming. But the 144,000 are special in that they're sealed and protected from death. But they, along with others, witness to Israel, which repents at the end of the tribulation. 
This obviously envisions a time in which Israel is a nation again in their land. But during the tribulation, when, when travel is not easy, these are the ones to whom Matthew 10.23 applies in its far final fulfillment. That these witnesses are the ones who will not finish going through the cities of Israel until literally the Son of Man comes. Now, we, we need to conclude. We've done this, this long, uh, detailed study this morning. Why have we done this? Just on a single verse. But like I said, I hope this just shares with you and it reflects our high view of Scripture. Every single verse in this Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired, given to you for all things for life and godliness. There's no exceptions to that. Every verse, every word, it's all instructive, edifying, necessary. Every verse is worth studying and digging around to pull out its treasure. These are some verses take more digging than others. It's especially true with, with prophecy, but like it's all worth it because this is all God's truth. And I just hope you learn to, to be those who contend and dig for the truth. Now, that said, whenever the Lord addresses the future, it is still meant to be, uh, guide all believers living before the end. And so now, just as we reflect on Matthew 10, the whole thing, 16 through 23, what is that guidance? What, what do we take away from this? Well, first, I mean, we see this confirmation of Galatians 1, 4, that we really are living in a present evil age, Galatians 1, 4. That, that Ephesians 5, 16, the days really are evil. But there is good news, that there is a Savior, Christ Jesus. He, he was treated like this first. He was arrested, betrayed, beaten, hated, and then put to death. But he did all that, dying on the cross, to give himself for our sins, that he might save us from what? From God, from God's wrath, from that wrath of God, which falls on the wicked. That was us. And that wrath is coming at the end of the age. But if you're in Christ by faith, then in the present, you have been sealed by the Spirit for eternal redemption. And when the Son of Man comes, that will only mean your entrance into that eternal kingdom. In the meantime, though, Luke 16, 8 says, in this age, we are called sons of light. In contrast to, it says, the sons of this age. We're now made different. We still live here. We're not in that kingdom yet. We're sons of light. The challenge is we still live in a dark world, but that's on purpose. We've been given a purpose. This age is evil. That doesn't change until the end of the age. And it means that the darkness will hate the light, like Jesus said in John 3, until the coming of the Son of Man. Like there's an ebb and flow to the intensity of the darkness as like the gospel, as it goes out, it does transform people and nations. Christians will find varying degrees of persecution in, in different nations, different ages. But look, in this age, so long as the world, the flesh, and the devil exist and abound, and they do, there might be differences in degrees, but look, as a rule, it holds true. Second Timothy 3.12 all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted one way or another, heavy, soft, one way or another. All this means that everything Jesus says in this passage, though having, at least I believe, an, an ultimate reference to the future, it most definitely still applies to us and guides our response, which means even today living in our context, we still need to be wise, shrewd as serpents, sensible disciples who live, though, holy, undefiled lights 
uh, lives as lights in the culture. It also means to be effective as light, as witnesses. We have to shine in the darkness. We, we can't just keep running away from darkness or dark times, dark places. There might be a time to flee the darkness when they're literally trying to put out our light. We've learned that. But until then, just learn to depend on the Lord and let your light shine. And the trials you face because of your faith at home, strife with family members who are unsaved at the workplace and society, whatever heat you get, endure. Endure it all to the end. As Christ said, you will be saved. In the end, I, I hope you received this morning in this study just uh, an even deeper conviction that, that the Christ himself, though, he really is our great and final hope in life and death. We live because of him. We live for him. We live to make his name known. And so even still, his, his coming, his return is our last great final hope. Just like 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says, we, we are awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because of Colossians 3, 4, which says that when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. We are sons of the age to come, and so when he returns, we, we join him in that glory. I'll leave you with 2 Thessalonians 1. This is all just like Paul said to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He's writing that church because they were being heavily persecuted and afflicted because of their faith. He's trying to encourage them. He, he tells them two things in verses 6 and 7 to lift them up. First, he says, hey, one day God will repay those who are afflicting you. He will judge all those who are afflicting you, verse 6. But also, at the same time, he says, God will give relief to you who are afflicted, verse 7. But when will that happen? It says in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 10 says that Christ comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and marveled at among all who believe. You know, Paul tells them this so that they might not give up or give in now, despite being made to suffer. And look, we have no expectation how long this will be. We don't know. But they just need to endure. And for that, they need hope. And Christ's coming is always given as that last, great, final, ultimate hope to all suffering. Everything wrong with this world, his coming is what sets it right. And so it's no wonder that the earliest prayer of the church was 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha, come, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. So however much time there is before that, may we continue to make that our prayer and our great hope as we are still living as bold, faithful, wise lights in the Lord. Let's make that a response. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we, we pray, hallowed be your name. And just stabbing into your word, we see just that the wisdom you have given in the scriptures and your plan for this, this world and this age, all through the Christ. And we give you the glory for it all. We, we thank you for what we've learned about our ultimate hope. We know, we look around us, we see the world around us. We see the power of your gospel. It changed us. We once were living in the darkness. We, we thank you for that, for the Christ who lived and died and rose for sinners such as us. And we, we see its power going forth, yet we know it's, it's a present evil age in the world. 
the devil, the flesh, they, they exist. We will have opposition. We will face some degree of persecution, but we know you are faithful. You are good. You've equipped us how to respond. And no matter what, we can endure knowing that as we persevere to the end, we will be saved. Unto death, unto the Lord's return, we have glorious future awaiting. It's all purchased by this Christ. We're not better or special or deserving. It's just by his mercy and grace. Any of this has taken place. And so we will hold fast to our anchor, Christ. We will hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. If any here are wavering in their faith, I pray you convict them, showing them just the depth, the power, the beauty of your word. You are God above. The good shepherd is holding them in, their hand, in his hands. May they just cling to him. Christ is our hope. We pray he does come quickly, but until then, we, we have our marching orders, and we live as holy lights in this age, in this state, in this world, and all for the, the glory of his name. It's in Christ's name we pray.